few months ago, one of our long-time members, Paul, emailed me and said, I've come across two Canadian investors who run a website called Contra the Herd, which was also the name of, uh, I think it was my second album when that came out. But anyway, that's another story. The reasons I became interested, he said, are, one, they have a 10-point checklist, exclamation mark. Two, they claim almost exactly the same returns as Tony over the long term, around 19.1%. The other reason I became interested is that their 10-point checklist is quite different to Tony's and appears to include the following. One, business must have been running for 10 years. Two, consistent dividend payer. Three, strong inside ownership. Four, good management, long-term employment. Five, stock must be trading at least 30%, uh, at least below 30% of its high achieved within the past five years. Six, no or low debt. Seven, good financials. I think this means a good PE compared to historical trends and good price to book value. Eight, there must be some macro tailwinds such as industry trends. Nine, the vibe of the stock, i.e. under promises slash over delivers, no silly acquisitions over the past 10 years, consistent dividend, gray hair management. Oh, I'd I'd be okay. Boring industry with no analyst coverage. I like that. And 10, I can't remember the last one you wrote. <laughs> the main differences to Tony's are that they seem to set a sell price at which they automatically sell when it reaches 100% growth and reinvest to the next on the checklist. There are no other sell trends other than red flags or bad news. So uh, Paul suggested we get them on the show for a chat. So I reached out to Benj Gallander and Ben Stadelman from Contra the Herd. They're on the show with us today. But in the process of r- reaching out to them and researching them, I learned that, among other things, Benj is the author of a book called The Contrary Investors 13, How to Earn Superior Returns in the Stock Market, and that Ben and Tony are actually friends from Tony's <laughs> Toronto days. And I don't think either of them knew that the other was doing in an investing newsletter, podcast, whatever. So here we are today, Benj and Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Yeah, thank you very much. Well, I did know that Ben was putting out an investment newsletter, but I never read it. I never read anything about it. <laughs> and uh, I don't think we talked about it at all either, did we, Ben? We may have discussed the stock here and there at some stage. Uh, yeah, probably just a, a little bit in passing. But it, when I, I told Kate, because uh, our, our daughters were in the same grade, I told Kate that I was going to be doing a podcast with Tony. She just said, get out. The investing world can't be that small. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the value investing world is that small, I think. That's probably a good place to start the interview. Why value investing, guys? And why not internet stocks or crypto or Bitcoin? Well, I, I guess um, be, being a, a contrarianism, I would say, is a, is a subset of value investing. There's a, certainly a, a great deal of overlap, but I would say that to some extent, maybe we're, we're contrarian personalities and that we don't necessarily follow exactly what everybody else uh, says and that maybe we have our, our different take on things. So Benj has always said that there's lots of systems that work and what's important is finding one that suits you. And I think uh, contrarian and value investing is one which suits us. Why do you think that is, Benj? Why does contrarian or value investing suit some people and not others? I think for some people, it's difficult to be wrong and perceived as wrong. I remember when we started the investment letter 27 years ago, we put out our, our first issue and I showed it to a friend of mine who was one of my stockbrokers. And he looked at our initial sell targets, as Cameron mentioned, we always set them. And he said, they don't make any sense. 
because we're always looking at 100% plus gains. So it can be 200, 300, 400%, but none of it is pie in the sky. It's always based on where the stock price has traded before. So a year later, we were out golfing. And I said to David, what do you think of the letter now? He said, well, now your sell targets make a lot more sense. Well, the sell targets haven't changed. The stocks have moved. But I think for me, part of it was simply my brain was wired that way. I always seem to look at things differently. Sometimes I blame it on my three older sisters. And because, because of them, I had to look at things somewhat differently. And when Ben and I met uh, in 1976, at the University of Western Ontario, uh, we kind of, I guess, glommed on to each other in a certain way. And uh, part of it is because we looked at things differently. And part of it, I think Ben will remember this, is we were playing poker on our floor in residence, and Ben was taking a whole bunch of my money. And I thought, who is this guy taking all of my money? And there's a part two to this story. And then he had a perfect hand he couldn't lose because we're playing with a lot of wild cards. So he had five aces, but he folded. And I thought, who's this guy taking a lot of my money, but he folded on a perfect hand? And that made me very curious. It was Thanksgiving weekend coming up. We ended up on the bus together, heading down to the train station and maybe the bus station for Ben. And we talked and we've been firm, fast friends ever since then. It's uh, been a real success story in so many ways. And I guess, yeah, in our, our contrarian streak, perhaps at that time, you were also interested in before investing in things like the racetrack, where <laughs> we were also not necessarily betting on the favorites. Let's put it that way. <laughs> and one at the alma mater, University of Western Ontario that we went to, they did an article on me about seven, eight years ago. And the focus of the article was what I did at Western, where my marks were, shall we say, not wonderful. I wasn't actually good at the racetrack. I enjoyed it. I was great at pinball. We played lots of sports. Ben and I took a poker class together. Was it? We, no, we took a bridge yes, class together. So we just, we, we had this, this affinity for things, not necessarily particularly diligent at school at that point in time, but it seems to have worked out pretty well. If you still like losing money on horses, <laughs> Tony owns a stable of horses that, at least when I was betting on them, seemed to lose every week. Uh, they tend to win when I don't place a bet. So if you uh, want me to give you a heads up of which weeks I'm betting and which weeks I'm not betting, uh, let me know. I charge a fee to let people know. If <laughs> I lose bet. money? Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, one of the key things I think we learned in uh, about, about horse racing is that the key factor is how much the house is taking, right? And that's your headwind. And, you know, if you're, I think at the time it was what, 16% or something like that, Bench, that's a big headwind. You know, then you go to the roulette table and it's what, two and a half percent? It's too high. Then you go to the blackjack table, you play well. Now it's down to maybe half of a percent. Now it's starting to get interesting. And then in the stock market, yes, we have friction with our commission fees, but in general, the house percentage is pretty tiny. And so it gives, the player a much better chance to make money. Yeah, and there's positive expectancy too. The market goes up every year anyway. You don't have to do anything. So there's a tailwind there as well. Absolutely. Not every year, but it goes up over overall. On average, true. On average, yeah. And you know, back in the day when Ben and I were 
in our early 20s. Quite frankly, we were looking for easy ways to make money. And I had done an awful lot of reading on blackjack, and Ben was very interested in it. So we went to Las Vegas. Counting cards. Counting cards. <laughs> we had a free trip with flight, hotels, some shows. And on that trip, Ben, as a matter of fact, he won money and did reasonably well. I actually lost some money. And I learned going to the racetrack, I couldn't beat it. Because again, the odds were 16 17% against us. Blackjack was fairly small. And then it was much easier because Vegas had some different rules than they have now. So you actually could get the odds in your favor. And now I think it's virtually impossible. But we were always looking at what are the odds? How can we play? What can we do? And ultimately, we, we found the stock market was the place for us to do it. Are you saying that back when the mob ruled Las Vegas, it was actually fairer than it is now that the big uh, corporations run? As a matter of fact, that's true. It is. <laughs> that's great. Yeah, no, 100%. <laughs> yeah, we would go from casino to casino, and we would look to play blackjack against one deck, which I don't know if you can still do there at all. I have a feeling you can't. And we would find these generally smaller casinos where we could do it. Now, of course, most of them, I think you go against six decks or eight decks. Often they shuffle after every hand. I mean, the past couple of times I've been to Vegas, it's been for uh, weddings or engagement party stags. And once I hardly played at all, the other time also not very much. You know, I'll play a little bit to have fun. But back when we first went, we were there to make money. Yeah, we were keen. <laughs> we really were. And we had a I said, early 20s, we had wonderful times. And Ben probably had a better time than me. Because as I said, he won. I didn't lose very much. I didn't have much to lose anyhow. But he did all right. Well, you should come to Australia, guys, because I remember living in Toronto thinking how antiquated the betting systems were over there. But uh, there's a casino in every city. There's a race, big racetrack with a big grandstand in every city. There's plenty of betting operators over here. There's no ATI. Well, there is an OTI, but it's not the only game in town. So I, I use Betfair and get 4 to 6% take out of that pie. So it's a much easier, well, it's still not perfect, but it's a much easier a place difference. to uh, risk your money. Huge difference, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's much easier than flying to Vegas <laughs> and, yeah. or going to one racetrack and using the OTI. You know, a key thing is you learn with experience, hopefully, not everybody does, what you can do well and what you can't. What system might work and what can't? And when I wrote the Contrarian Investors 13, I combined numerous systems. So some people say it's your system. Well, yes, ultimately, but it is a number of systems together. And that's absolutely critical. Remember when we used to go to the racetrack, we would bet based on the board and we'd look for certain discrepancies on the board so that we could get better odds. And I remember we would go, <laughs> we went a few times to a racetrack near where Ben grew up in Clinton. And you would look at the board and think, okay, I'm going to bet. But the thing was, if you, and we weren't betting much money back then. We, if you put down $2 or $5, you'd see the board change and say, that's my bet. That's my <laughs> bet to change in the odds. That's a shallow pool. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty shallow. <laughs> Yeah, not a major racetrack, to be sure. Well, I mean, similar sort of backgrounds. I think uh, people ask me what should they do to get started in the stock market, and I say, 
take a pile of money to the racetrack and develop a system. And that's uh, it's part of the learning process, I think. So I agree with you. So your system is a bit different to my system in that you have a sell price that you use as a target when you're prepared to sell something. How do you calculate that sell price? Is there a key metric involved or what? I'll look at where the stock has traded over the past 10 years. And Cameron mentioned, I'll only buy into companies that have traded for at least 10 years. So there's a lot of history there. So say if for seven of the past 10 years, it's traded at a certain level and beyond, I will often set the sell price somewhere towards the bottom of that range, plus maybe 10, 15%. And it's at the same time, again, we're looking at having those huge gains. Sometimes it'll be a little different, say, for a company like uh, Alpha Protect that we played. And in that case, in some other cases, we have stocks that over the past 10 years, they may just jump. And they may just jump because of a pandemic. Alpha Protect, which makes masks and equipment for health effectively, when there was SARS, this pandemic, Ebola. et cetera, Ebola, all of a sudden the stock price would jump and it might jump many multiples. So in that case, it would be a little bit different. You wouldn't necessarily have the stock trading at much higher levels for a long period of time, but it would spike up and we look to capitalize on the spike. And we don't necessarily stand, we don't necessarily sell, even though we're very disciplined, at the sell target. We almost always do selling at least 50%. But say if it's in November or December, we often won't sell because we're looking to defer taxation. And we also know at the end of the year, there can be the Christmas rally and in January, things can often be better. So there's a lot of different things that go into it. But for the most part, we're looking to sell when it hits the sell target and around there. I've had, a, I guess, a, a lot of experience at trying to set sell prices based on a price which is above the buy price, obviously. And I just find that uh, I can't do it. <laughs> it's, uh, if I set the sell price, the stock will just blow through it. And I, if I sell at that price, I've missed out on another 100% leg up. So uh, I have a different way of selling based on the, the trends in the graph. So, yeah, I'm interested to find how, how you guys do it because uh, it's, it's one of the difficulties that I've grappled with. Because, you know, if I buy something when it's cheap and it reverts to the mean, it's a pendulum, right? So I bought it when I was here. On, it gets back to the mean, but it doesn't stop. It just keeps going. So I found that a number of stocks I've held have had a very irrational share price in the end before I sell them. Whereas if I had have tried to pick a sell price, it would have been a lot less than where we finished up. I think that's a, a really good uh, metaphor, uh, Tony. I mean, I mean, certainly that pendulum, well, of course, we talk about cyclical stocks, but yeah, a lot, even stocks which are not necessarily considered to be, strictly speaking, cyclical, they will tend to have that pendulum because sometimes companies are more successful, then there's a retrenchment, they become more successful again. Now, as Benjamin was saying, we normally sell, say, around half at that target price. If our sense of the market is that that pendulum still has a long way to go, that's where we're letting the momentum carry it. And sometimes quite a distance, just trying to get more of that amplitude before it runs out of gas and swings back the other way. And virtually, I don't know what percentage, but the, the vast majority of our stocks continue to go further. So we, it's rare we get close to maximizing that the profits that we can have. But 
I would say, I don't know what percentage, Ben, but the vast majority continue to go upwards. But at least we've taken some of it off the table and we've taken it off for huge gains. So sometimes we will sell all of it. But, you know, I love to think that setting initial sell target is very scientific. It isn't. We do the best we can. It's more of a, I guess, in a lot of ways, we study it. We look at the graphs. We try and get it right. But again, when we can see it continue to go up, it's the way it is. I sold one two weeks ago. It had been a nine bagger. I sold actually a little less than 50%, a stock called Volco. And then I'm thinking about it further, the stock did come down because the market's been hit. But I think it has a good distance to continue to go. But after a nine bagger, I'm certainly happy. But I'm still hopeful that it could double from uh, where I sold it from. Although right now it's down about 20%. The way I look at it is the majority of the companies we buy are turnarounds, I would say. And so that means they have problems. And so the way I look at it is, okay, I know what the stock price is today when these problems are manifested. In the past, they didn't have those problems. And I, I believe that the company can fix those problems. Then I have an idea of what the stock is going to trade for when it doesn't have this mess on its hands. And that, that may seem a bit simplistic, but it sometimes in a turnaround situation, it is that simple. If they have to get over whatever is screwing things up at the moment. And then also what can happen, I agree wholeheartedly with Ben, but when the market takes a huge beating, those stocks will go down too. So sometimes we can buy into sectors or stocks because we're stock pickers and say, it's not getting the crap kicked out of it because of the company. It's getting the crap kicked out of it because of the market. So then there's a good chance that it will recover when the market recovers and can do a lot better. They're very good points. What do you do with a stock that never reaches your sell price? Do you hold on to it forever or do you have another way of exiting? <laughs> yeah, there's a few gray hairs in the portfolio. <laughs> <laughs> we call it pulling weeds. Uh, yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, what's the oldest one right now? I guess Flextronics bench? Yeah. So you want to talk a bit about that one? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've held that for a long time. It actually it took over the company we had before. We have sold part of it because it did hit the sell target, and then it came down. We're waiting. But we're very patient investors. Often enough, when I was on being in Bloomberg here, our, our business channel, Andrew Bell often he would interview him and say, how can you be so patient? But we bought into two funeral home operators. Service and Stewart. They were the two biggest in the United States. And after we bought in, one of them had some major problems because they were digging up graves to put in new bodies. And this just isn't allowed. So the stock got beat. Neither of those companies moved very far for about 10 years. And we held them. Now, fortunately, they both paid dividends. And often I say dividends allow me to be stupid longer. Then all of a sudden, they both started to really move, to fly, and we ended up selling them for 400% plus gains. So it took over 10 years on both of them. As a matter of fact, service took over, Stuart, at a premium. But if you get a 400% plus gain, and you wait 10 years or 12 years, it doesn't matter so much. Not so bad. 
<laughs> yeah, but sometimes it happens, or normally it happens much quicker for us. But we will sell and take tax losses. We will sell when we feel that our thesis was wrong on the stock and things are getting worse. We've made some major errors over the years. I mean, we're doing the letter for 27 years. I started investing as a teenager. I think then you were early 20s, if I, if I have it correct. Yeah. So we've learned both by what we've done correctly and, of course, by what we've done incorrectly. And we can certainly highlight a slew of stocks, maybe I should call it low light, a slew of stocks where we've made mistakes. And, you know, often I, I see people on TV or read articles and they never make mistakes. <laughs> they never do. And I just think, are they full of crap, which isn't the word I would normally use, but crap's a good, a good version of it. Or um, you just haven't made many investments. But what we've tried to do over the years is reduce the number of mistakes we've made because you don't want to be losing capital. And we, we've done that fairly well. We had a, a brief bump because when oil and gas prices went way down, you might remember that a couple of years ago, we certainly got hit. And I sold a couple for major losses, which since then, you know, I wish I'd held them. One has gone up 45 times from the bottom. Yeah, they're about 25 times from the bottom. <laughs> and the best thing I could say is I paid less money to Revenue Canada. It's a, I don't take a lot of solace in that. I wanted to follow up on something that Ben said before about the turnaround situation. Management is so critical to that sort of style of investing. Do you have a process for rating the ability of management? Yeah, that's a tricky one, um, Tony. I mean, I think one of the mistakes, like when I look back to some of the mistakes we've made, one of the themes is company A, you buy into it, it's a turnaround situation, and it performs beautifully. That manager then goes to company B and you think, oh, wow, that guy's brilliant. Yeah. And then you, you go into company B and it blows up in his face. So I would say, yeah, obviously trying to assess that management is competent is critical, but I'm, I'm a little bit leery about the so-called kind of the superstar syndrome because it usually means that they just haven't you know, they hit the situation yet where things go awry. So we look kind of for a reasonable team, but certainly people who have been there for a while, and if they've been through a couple of cycles, and so they know what to do when times are bad, they know how to cut back, they know how to kind of open up again when things are going better. That gives me a lot more confidence because they've seen it before. Good point. Let me ask you some of the questions that we get asked a lot, just some basic ones. What's about portfolio construction? How many stocks are in your portfolio? It's usually between 15 and 25. And we have two portfolios, one that Ben manages with Phil McKellar. The one that I manage, it's been between 15 and 25 for years. Right now, it's at the low end. It's for a couple of reasons. One is I'm somewhat dubious about the market now. So my strategy has been to buy less. And I'm also maybe a little quicker to sell. So I would like to boost a number of stocks, but I'm in no race to do it. You know, if you have too many stocks, one of my chapters is called Beware the Devil of Overdiversification. Because then what happens is stocks work against each other. 
And people who buy into mutual funds and ETFs, they buy a whole slew of them. And you know, historically, if this one goes up in that sector, that field, the one in the other will go down. So you have to be aware over diversification. Not a lot of people talk about it, but you do want to have diversification at the same time. Do you only hold Canadian stocks or are you and, and US stocks, I guess, or are you investing overseas as well? We have Canadian, we have stocks in the States, we have ADRs, we have Orange Telecom, we have what else? Santander? Santander, a big Spanish bank. So we do have in other countries, we have Credit Suisse in one of them. So, but we have invested in the US to buy those. Hypothetically, could we buy on other exchanges and other spots in the world? Sure. But we have a huge field between Canada and the US and stocks from other countries that are listed there. That's a large pool to drink in. What kind of data providers do you use and how long, does you, how long would you spend on your process in a normal day or week? I like uh, Yahoo Finance because they have a pretty good API, which then will link to some other software I have called Stock Market Eye. So it, it seems to be pretty good for basic stuff. I like Seeking Alpha a lot. I guess I'm a bit of a grazer. <laughs> so <laughs> I would say, you know, one of the biggest differences, sometimes get asked, you, what's the biggest difference between when you started investing to investing now? And I would say back in the day, it was difficult to get information. And the brokers held it very tightly. And like Benjamin, go to the library, the public library to, to get information, pull out a value line and so on. And now it's rather the, the opposite problem. There is a fire hose of information just coming at you. And the critical thing is to filter it and not get drowned by it. Yeah, and I also use, uh, it's called the world's best stock market screener. I think that's a good one. The Globe and Mail, the newspaper we write for, Canada's national newspaper, used to have a fabulous filter. Unfortunately, they don't anymore. I've actually just gone three days last week. I spent just filtering all the stocks on New York stock exchanges. The first filter was down at least 33% in the past 52 weeks. Cameron, I think you said the past five years, but it's the past 52 weeks. So I went through all of those and I saw if they'd been listed for 10 years. Then I would actually email the company for information. So I try and get hard copies, but most companies won't send them anymore. <laughs> of course, I can get this on the internet and I do use the internet for it. But it's, it's changed completely. When I was around 20 years old, I would go through the listings of the American stocks, the Canadian stocks, line by line in the Globe and Mail to figure out what was down to 33%. Mark them down, then I would send them a typed letter asking for their past four years of annual reports, asked to be put on their list. Now it's just so much easier than it used to be. But the one, uh, the converse of that, I would say, is one has to be wary of the noise. There is so much information, in some ways too much information, and as you guys all know, there's often people who just want to sell you something that may have little or no value. So you really have to screen through things. And I'm known a little bit here. People think I don't have a cell phone. I do have one. <laughs> it lives in the glove compartment of my car. 
I don't want to be so accessible. I'm very accessible still. I use a computer more than I would like to, but I am wary of being uh, going hither and yon all the time by being too accessible. And that noise can get to you and, and cause you to make mistakes. Uh, in terms of the system, after I discover a stock, so to speak, like from the filter I did the other day, or other three days, I will wait a minimum of six months before buying. Often it can be three or four or five years before I'll buy, because often the stocks don't move for quite a while. So again, it takes a lot of patience. I don't walk as quickly as I used to. I don't move <laughs> as quickly. It's easier for me to be patient. Ken and I went for a walk about two months ago, and he said, is this how you really walk? Have you become patient? <laughs> I like to think it's because I'm thinking more, and I don't always walk like that. But Ben and I are famous for walks You know, we used to take. He joined me years ago. I took him a month and did a 750K walk from Niagara on the Lake to Tobamori. And Ben joined me for, I guess, three days. I walked faster then, <laughs> but I also got lost for it. <laughs> There's a balance there. <laughs> Cam, you have any uh, questions you want to throw in, mate? Well, not questions as such, but I guess the thing that jumps out at me is that as Paul, who, who brought you to my attention anyway, points out, you guys have a checklist. It's similar in some ways, to Tony's approach, different in many ways, but the results are about the same. And, I, and I'm wondering how much of success in investing do you think comes down to just having a checklist? You said earlier on that um, you got to find a system. There's lots of different systems. you got to find one that works for you, your personality, your objectives, those sorts of things, your character. But the checklist, I think, it seems to be like a really powerful tool. Can you talk a little bit maybe about how you came up with the idea for a checklist and, and why you have a checklist? Because I know Tony's checklist story, how and why he developed one. I'm interested in your story behind a checklist. Well, I'd be interested in hearing Tony's story after. It just seemed to me that there were certain things that you really had to look at and therefore over time put together the list over the years it has changed somewhat. But overall, it stayed pretty much the same. I think part of it is to stay grounded. If you've got a list and you're going more by the list, it's easier. And my first best-selling stock was called The Uncommon Investor. It actually combines baseball and stocks. It's family and friends watching the seventh game of the World Series between the Toronto Blue Jays and New York Mets. Given that we're from Toronto, you can imagine who won. But to me, I think that the grounding is key, but there's a page in that book and the whole page is without discipline, you have no method. And I think it's critical to be disciplined. And Ben will also say, though, you know, there's a certain amount that is gained from experience. And Ben and myself will also say, you know, we have a good feel for this stock. And there's the point method, and I want to see a minimum tally of 10, but two 12s on two different companies, sure, the number's the same, but sometimes you end up thinking, you know, I've seen this before, or the feeling for this is, I think that 
this one has much better chance of doing well. And, you know, I'll say we're seasoned veterans. Ben might say we're grizzled veterans. <laughs> you know, again, we go back so far together. We know a lot of each other's terms. But I think having that knowledge to recognize certain things outside of just a numerical format is important. But I said, Tony, I'd love to hear how you came up with your system. The checklist itself was after reading a book called The Checklist Manifesto, which was, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but a, a surgeon was trying to work out why his operating theater would have errors. He cast around looking for ways to improve and looked at the airline industry eventually and said, well, they've got a Six Sigma process here in terms of what they do and, and have statistically very, very low crashes. And he put that down to the fact that before the plane takes off, the pilot goes through a checklist. Doesn't matter if the pilot's feeling good today or bad today or confident today or not, they just go through the same process. And that's, he put that down to why the, the airline industry had such a good record. And he started implementing it in his hospital and the surgery error rates went way down. And uh, I took that idea and, and put it to my kind of checklist ad hoc process, if I can say that. So I had a process. But the checklist really allowed me to put rules around things and to codify it. And that's useful for me because, as we all know, uh, the market can throw you curveballs. And the last thing you want to do is have your emotions rattled by the, the stock market. But my checklist, just if I know I can just implement my checklist, regardless of how I feel about the company, the market, the economic environment, over the long term, I'll get my returns. Can I... Um- Throw in an interesting anecdote about that, Tony. Did you watch the um, Berkshire shareholder meeting coverage over the weekend? I did, yeah. Did you see Becky's interview with Bill Murray? Yes. So the movie (laughs) that's been put on hold that he's making, and there's some sexual harassment issues between him and a female actress, the movie he's making is called Being Mortal based on a book by Atul Gawande, the guy who wrote the checklist manifesto book. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's a nice way of coming full round. The guy inspired your checklist. Yeah. So for Benj and Ben, like I'm a new investor, you know, Tony's the, the, the reason we started the podcast a few years ago is so Tony could teach me who's a complete novice and an idiot how to invest. And one of the things that the, the checklist does for me, and I know for our members as well, is it's just made the decision-making process really easy. I don't have to think very hard about what I buy and what I sell and when I buy it and when I sell it because Tony's checklist just tells me what to do. We have a saying, we just say, you know, there'll be all these instances like all the time where you don't want to sell something or you don't want to buy something sometimes too because you've got a history with the stock and, you know, blah, 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 or you, you're trying to predict what might happen tomorrow, next week, next month. But we, you know, we have the saying that rules is rules and we just uh, follow the rules. It, it allows me to turn my monkey brain off and just follow a process because I'm not smart enough to, you know, you guys have been doing this for 30, 40 years, which is great. You have um, a lot of intuition an experience that you can bring to it. But for those of us that are new, having a checklist is fantastic. It just enables me to color by numbers, really, and get good results. So uh, yeah, the checklist is really, really a great tool for those of us that are new, I found. 
That makes a lot of sense because at a really base level, making money in the stock market, it's as as old as the hills, buy low, sell high. Everybody knows that. But very few people, especially new investors, understand kind of emotionally and contextually what that really means. Buy low. Well, what's going on? Why is it low? It means that there's some bad things going on. There has to be a reason why it's low. And yet you need to be able to go in there and buy it with a knowledge that there's a pretty good chance of being able to sell it down the road higher rather than the company going bankrupt. Right. And so buy low is not as easy as it sounds. So any tools which help you get over that psychological hurdle and help you to figure out what are the actually the, the good prospects is of great value. And the other aspect of it, too, is in turbulent, volatile conditions like we have at the moment. And we've had a lot of in the last few years since we started this podcast. We started about a year before COVID hit and, you know, there's been all sorts of ups and downs since then, obviously, supply chain issues, China trade wars, Ukraine wars. One of the things that it enables me as a new investor to do is ignore the noise and just follow what the system tells me to do. It's that discipline that you mentioned before, Benj, that I think the checklist really helps bring to new investors as well as experienced investors, I'm sure. The ability to ignore the noise and just follow a recipe and just keep, that's been proven over decades. So we just keep following that recipe day in, day out. And it means for me, I don't need to, I don't need to worry. There's no anxiety. There's no stress. Like I know that if I just follow the system, follow the recipe, it'll spit out a chocolate cake at the end of every financial year. Well, on average, I'll get lots of on chocolate average. cakes over years. <laughs> Every now and again, I'll get half a chocolate cake, but I'll get a good chocolate cake at the end. So, yeah. One thing that is key to me is to keep on learning. So in the back of my books, I have a bibliography, books that I think are good and to read. I think it's seven, eight years ago, Ben and I went to the Berkshire meetings. We had a, a wonderful trip. As you know, we, we go back so far. We met in university. We've done so many things together over the years. We haven't done a trip like that in a while. I remember Ben saying to me, I think we're in the airplane coming out of Detroit. He said, Ben, we don't really have to work this trip. We're just going, you know, it's for fun and to learn and to see. And I seem to remember that after the first night, we weren't seeing quite so well. (laughs) But a key thing is to keep learning. And to keep on reading. So with that in mind, Tony, uh, where would I look for your checklist? Do I just go online and it'll come and throw in your name and it'll pop up? Yeah, we'll or just go to our website, qavpodcast.com. Yeah. Well, actually, no, they need to sign up to become members, Tony, to see our checklist. But we'll- oh, do they? Okay. Well, we can send <laughs> we'll them. We'll send it to them. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. It's so important. I mean... It's important not to rest on laurels. It's important to keep learning. I mean, things have changed a lot in the past few years. We own a stock, which you probably know of, called BlackBerry, which hadn't done anything at all. It got caught in the uh, meme, and then it just skyrocketed for a few days. I guess we sold about 80% each. I wish we had sold it all. We had another (laughs) firm called Koss Headphones, which I paid a dollar and change. It went up as a meme stock to 127. I wish I hadn't sold on the way up. But of course, I 
rarely ever maximize anything like that. Plus, there was no logic behind it. What I did at that point in time, I said, so what are these memes? So to learn about them, technology, what's changing in technology that I continue to learn from and continue to use. And it's very, very important that things are changing and one tries to keep on learning about them. And Ben, I should say, he's far better at technology than me. I mean, there's like very, very little comparison. When we were at Western, he just knew so much more and he's continued to add on over the years. I'm not a complete Luddite. I can run a toaster, right? Hey? And you have a phone, but it's in the glove box of your car. (laughs) One question I do want to ask you guys as as contrarian investors, one of the um, challenges, I think, for people that are new to our show, Tony's Process, Value Investing, or new to investing, one of the challenges, particularly over the last couple of years, it's probably not so much now, but I'm sure it will come back, is the temptation to follow the herd and invest in everything that everyone's talking about. Your crypto, last few years, tech stocks. You know, we had tech stocks in Australia, as you obviously did over there, that were just growing by absurd amounts day in, day out. And uh, we were ignoring all of those and ignoring the crypto because of the, the principles that Tony teaches us. How do you view that process like, you know, when you see things like Bitcoin, for example, going up by exorbitant amounts or tech stocks, how do you maintain the discipline to not get sucked into investing in those? Well, I'll tell you my Bitcoin story. I was very interested early on, just really in the whole concept, because the, just the whole story of its creation is really quite phenomenal. And, and it's still one of the great mysteries of the world as to who this person is who, who developed this amazing concept. But um, as it became established, I thought I was going to take my, my whack at Bitcoin. And I bought some at $170 a Bitcoin. Oof. And I watched it go up and I thought, oh boy, Ben, you're really smart. And it got up to 440 and I sold it all. <laughs> so, so, you know, the, I think the thing is you can sort of be right, but still be horribly, horribly wrong when it comes to new technologies and, and new ideas. You know, so Bitcoin, you know, I can still get my head around, but NFTs, forget it. Like, like <laughs> that's just, it's just beyond the pale. Like, I just, I really don't understand really what people are, are spending millions of dollars on. And, I, you know, because it's just over my head. You haven't joined the NFT racetrack community in New York yet? I have not. I have not, <laughs> no. I remember in the, the late 80s, sorry, late 90s, when uh, the tech stocks were flying like crazy. And because the vast majority hadn't been around for 10 years, I couldn't buy into any. And people were making fortunes. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating to watch. I remember I had a book launch back then. And a guy who was, he was actually our second subscriber to the investment letter. He came there with a woman, I think was his girlfriend. And she was like, like, why does he follow you? I'm making a fortune in tech stocks. You know, and I said, that's great. I hope you make lots of money. I'm obviously not. And then about two years ago, I ran into her at a, a show. 
<laughs> the tech record occurred. And I said, so how are your tech stocks doing? And I didn't want to gloat. I didn't want her to lose all kinds of money, but she was very, very unhappy. At, at the end of the day, she done very poorly. Going back uh, about five years, I was on uh, CBC TV quite a bit every few weeks and covering three topics. And often it was marijuana and it was cryptocurrencies because they were both hot, hot, hot. And I couldn't invest in either one based on my system. Now, I knew marijuana stocks, some of them would do well. You can look at it like the old days of the automotive. Some of them are going to do well. The question was, which ones do you choose? Crypto, some would do well. I still haven't invested in the crypto. I'm thinking I should invest in a number. My 21-year-old, he's bought into 11 of them. He's, he has way more knowledge about these things than me. But I think I've learned that it's not that you have to buy a lot of things. It's not that you have to invest in a lot of new areas. Your returns are based on what you buy. And that's the critical thing. So if you're buying good things, sure, if you picked all these other things, maybe you would have done better. Ben and I, I'm sure he remembers also back in uh, the late 80s, we owned a company called Moore Corporation. It was as boring as you could have. Watching paint dry. <laughs> it was watching paint dry. And we compared it in our investment letter to Commerce One, which was a super exciting high-tech stock. I don't think they had any revenues, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong. And it's kind of like Moore Corporation makes so much more sense to us than Commerce One. Well, when we sold Moore Corporation for large gains, I don't remember, four or five years later, and Commerce One had done crap, I'm using that word a lot today, it looked good. But you have to be willing to ignore the daily pulse of the market. You have to be willing to ignore certain newfangled areas. But again, if you know how to play them, you can make a lot of money. But it's not easy to do. But I, I've got a, I've got two 21-year-old sons, one who's investing. He's got a portfolio that he's built around QAV. And... He's constantly saying, oh, man, you guys, like, like I love Tony and everything, but uh, come on, you know, Bitcoin is where it's at. You know, uh, you, you, you guys, you got to figure this out. You got to figure out tech stocks. You got to figure out Bitcoin. There's got to be a model in here somewhere. How do you remove yourself and stick to your rules when there's that kind of market pressure going on that you should be investing, apparently, in these hot, sexy new ideas? I think what you're getting at, uh, Cameron, is that there is some emotion involved here, right? Yeah, there's FOMO involved, if nothing else. Yeah, that's right. Fear, fear of missing out. And just to turn that upside down for a second, one of the fellows that I really admire, fantastic investor, Barry Ritzholtz, uh, who uh, writes a blog called The Big Picture, very successful gentleman. And uh, one of the things he says is when I look at a story or I look at a company, and when my first kind of gut reaction is disgust, it usually means there's something that has an opportunity in it. And it is really, it, it is, it's, it, it's really fascinating. Because yeah, I mean, some of these best investments are companies which you just kind of, yeah, they could be really boring, 
or or they can just simply seem really really bad or maybe just not on brand so like for example i, I really liked chemical a lot because i thought nuclear was a really important component towards how this plan is going to take on climate change well Three years ago, that was not a very popular concept that nuclear was going to be a key plank. In fact, a lot of people's reaction to nuclear was, no, I will never, ever buy any company that has anything to do with uranium. Well, kind of fast forward, you know, I've done very, very well with it. It's what I like, triple or so. And now Germany's rethinking their plans to uh, shut down all their reactors. Uh, UK, same thing. So. Sometimes the world takes a little bit of time and then it makes a reappraisal of these things which have that initial feeling of disgust. Well, I'm finding the same thing, Ben. That's, I guess, a question for both of you. A lot of the stocks I hold tend to be on the other side of the ESG argument. So I bought a lot of oil companies six months to 12 months ago. Before that, I bought some coal companies. And of course, that's not popular with some of our listeners because they, they think that that's you know, helping climate change rather than trying to prevent it. What's your take on the whole ESG argument? Is it a, an input into your checklist or do you not worry about it? Well, I, I think about it a lot. I think at the end of the day, it's actually going to help me. I think it's going to make it easier because if companies are in sectors such as, say, oil and gas, where the banks aren't going to want to lend the money and so there's going to be starved for capital. That means that it's going to be a little bit more difficult for juniors to move into those areas. And it means that the companies that are well-established, have great cash flows, don't have to go to a bank to borrow money. They're probably going to do much, much better into, into the future. So I think there's opportunity there. I guess so. where I was coming from with my question was, I don't necessarily take the counter view to ESG. It just happens that my checklist throws these undervalued companies up because of ESG. To me, that's the, in these days, it's the ultimate contrarian investing. What sort of uh, mentality do you have to have to take that kind of opposite opinion when everyone's saying, oh, no, no, investing in a coal company is bad for the environment, bad for the planet? We have our lines, eh, Benj? Like we don't, we don't invest in cigarette companies. We don't invest in arms manufacturers, right? So, yeah, I mean, I mean, everybody has their, has their red lines, and, and we do too. But um, we happen to think that a lot of things which are maybe not popular are nonetheless essential. I'll go back to 1992, and coal here was not very popular. I went to work in what was Czechoslovakia, and I saw that coal was heating the places there, and I thought, Coal isn't dead. I came back to Canada, invested in Lascar. We did very well. Right now, we're seeing it's fascinating because countries don't want to deal with Russia. They want to cut off, say, the Russian natural gas. They want Germany to cut it off. I mean, Russia's been sort of proactive in terms of cutting it off to Poland and Bulgaria, and that's still paid them, I guess, in rubles. But in Germany, a lot of people are rebelling against just getting away from oil and gas. And the reason is very simple. They want to keep the heat on. They want to keep the electricity on. It's very easy to say, let's just get rid of all this stuff. 
but people don't want to be cold. So it can be a great idea to go to solar power and wind power. And of course, we're shifting that way. But a lot of people make it seem like we'll just get rid of those plants and we'll move right into the others. It doesn't happen like and something that bothers me is often they don't take into account what it costs to get rid of those plants before their time is up and build others. Often it's more environmentally friendly to keep those plants going for their normal life expectancy rather than knock them down and use all kinds of materials for something else. It's the same, you know, with cars. I mean, we, in my family, my car is uh, nine years old, still runs well. We tend to go 10, 12 years with our cars. What does it cost to buy, not just the cost to buy the new car, but the cost to the environment? What would we save in terms of environmental degradation by keeping our cars another one, two, three, four, five years? Sure, maybe the, the new cars will have better gas mileage, et cetera, but there's a trade-off. And often we, we don't think of it. We say, get rid of it, get rid of it. And too often it's the flavor of the day. So by you investing in what you're investing in, are you causing more of an environmental catastrophe? If you didn't own the shares, I would think somebody else would. So that's the way I look at it. Now, I have a very similar opinion. And flipping it on its head, uh, when I was in Toronto, and you mentioned it before, marijuana stocks were taking off. I played with a, a chap who used to smoke on the course. He keep, kept telling me he had these great stock tips on which marijuana stocks to buy, and they were up 20% and 30%. Of course, I, I'd had a look at them and couldn't value any of them. And then uh, when, they, when they came to Australia, checked them out, and they'd all gone to, not, if not zero, close to it. So it, that's kind of the reverse, isn't it? When the as you know, when the crowd says, have a look at these stocks, you still have to have a system to be able to, to buy them and, and be willing to cop the flack that you're a fuddy-duddy, you're, you're old-fashioned, you don't get it. And I think that's an important tray of contra-investing and contrarian investing and value investing as well. Well, to, to put a valuation on something, as you were saying, you couldn't do it with those companies. That's why I had the 10-year rule. Being a fuddy-duddy, I, I get that idea. Being a disciplined investor who is patient, that isn't being a fuddy-duddy the way I look at things. That's being a smart investor. I remember years ago, my, my handyman, he said his son wanted to meet me because he'd seen me on TV a lot. So I said, sure, it's my handyman. I got to keep him on my good side. So his son came over and he had invested in marijuana stocks and crypto stocks. And he had made a fortune. So I said, so, do you know what a P.E. ratio is? Nope. Do you know what some other ratios are? Went over a few. No idea. Do you know what an MER is? No idea. But he had done phenomenally well on virtually no knowledge. A couple of years later, I think things had turned around and he hadn't done as well. I'm sure he probably had some bankruptcies. I mean, you can do well for a while not knowing a lot. But I think knowledge is still key. Knowledge to a certain degree is power. Knowledge is not perfection, but it gives you a better chance to do well. And it sometimes strikes me that the basic investing, investing 101, as it's been passed down to us from Benjamin Graham onwards, 
is to buy a share in a business that's got a track record of making money and is currently available at a discount to uh, what you think the valuation is. That is basic investing. Everything outside of that is contrarian. So I don't think we're the contrarians. I think we're the people that are actually (laughs) investing. Everyone who buys stuff that's not making money, they're the contrarians. It's it's got it backwards. Well, I, I think sometimes also the crowd is very idealistic. I mean, they would like to change the world. They would like the world to be a better place than, than it is now. And it, it's, it's a wonderful concept. But the reality is often not there or it, or it lags. So we're talking just as an example. I mean, the energy crisis in Europe did not start with the war in Ukraine. The energy crisis started when the weather pattern changed and there was less wind and there was less sun. So the renewables that had been built across Western Europe suddenly weren't pumping out as much electricity as they had been and as they were supposed to based on their specs and based on you know what meteorologists expected. That's just a realistic fact on the ground, but it's an unpopular one because people would love to believe that solar energy is the future and that wind power can you know help us get rid of this stuff. Well, sometimes. You know, the reality just is a little bit uncooperative. I mean, I'm, I'm a curler and uh, I love watching curling on TV. And my favorite commentator, he's always asked, you know, well, what's your strategy? How do you change when the other team was doing X, Y and Z? And he'll explain it through. And then in his last thing, he'll say, but sometimes the other team just won't cooperate with you. <laughs> <laughs> I can see why you're a patient investor, Ben, if you like curling. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For those of us that haven't lived in the Northern Hemisphere, remind me what curling is. <laughs> Lawn bowls on ice, can Lawn bowls on ice. So I think actually there, you know, Australia does have a couple of uh, mixed doubles teams. And in New Zealand, there's a curling centre in Dunedin and one in uh, Naseby, and there's a, there's a few good curlers wow. in New Zealand. But tell the truth, you and, you and Brenda play Curling just for the drinks, really, don't you? That's what you told me. Well, but certainly uh, we do love a sport which <laughs> where, which has the built-in alcoholic component to it. Yes, <laughs> and it's hard to spill your drinks when you when you're curling because it's not that active, is it? Really? <laughs> oh, yeah, just after the game. I, the only time that I, I've had a drink on the ice was in Scott with the Scots. They'll have a wee draft. <laughs> Sounds like Tony. Yeah. Well, guys, we should probably start to wrap this up um, unless you've got any other areas you want to delve into, TK. No, I think we've covered a lot. Thank you very much, guys. We should mention where to get access to your newsletter as well because we, we thought we'd have you on, not just because one of our listeners came across you, but because we have North American listeners to this podcast as well. So where should they go? Contratheherd.com, please. And you spell herd H-E-A-R-D. H-E-A-R-D. Yes, that's What's right. What's the story behind that? Well, it's a bit of a play on words, eh, Benj? Absolutely. We, you know, we we thought about it years ago, and uh, the Wall Street Journal had to call him "Herd on the Street," and we just thought of the herd that follows people following everybody else. <laughs> you know, you can also just throw our name into Google or whatever; you'll come up with this. And if you have any questions at all about the way we do things or even stocks, whatever, feel free to email us 
I get back to virtually everybody within 24 hours. If it's 48 hours, generally a long time. Happy to converse with people. And, you know, I'm planning a trip to Australia. I don't know when. One of my sons, his uh, girlfriend, she's going to Australia in September for seven months to go on an internship, which means my that son will probably follow her, which means I will probably just have to go. <laughs> I guess I've traveled about 35 countries and worked in a number of them. Australia and New Zealand and Portugal are at the top of my list to go to. And one of these fine days I will get there, hopefully in the next few years. Well, look us up when you do. We'll have to do an event. We'll do a dinner or something when you come down if you have the time and you know, members can come along and can have a good night. Absolutely. And after we can all go curling. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll have to be lawn bowls in Australia. Sorry, Ben. Just... We'll have a whole, we'll, we'll host a bunch of beverages and then we'll go and curl. <laughs> so let's wrap up. If I'll ask each of you, if you don't mind, to give us one concluding thought for investors out there, your, your best bon mot for uh, contrarian investors. Who wants to go first? I guess what I would say is like Benj was talking about having an eight bagger, which is, which is fantastic. But you know, when something like that happens, the key thing is not to, you know, don't fill the bathtub with champagne. Like, you know, you want to get high, but you don't want to get too high because there's going to be days when the market, when the market is going to give you some licks. And when that happens, you don't want to get too low. So I, I think uh, the, the key is to, you know, just kind of, stay in the middle ground and then helps you sleep at night. So first, I guess I'm now going to have to empty the champagne in the bathtub. <laughs> I think, again, discipline, as I mentioned, is key. Develop a system. Use it as a guidebook. Don't marry it completely. Be willing to evolve. Learn from your mistakes. Be willing to time giving you more than you ask for, I think. Be willing to talk to other people and get input from other people and learn from what you've done well. And uh, it's a process and that's key. Keep on, as I said before, keep on learning, keep on reading. That's absolutely critical. Good stuff. Thank you, guys. Well, that's it. So Contra the Herd, H-E-R-D.com. Everyone go along and check that out. And um Enjoy the rest of your week, guys. Thanks for taking time to chat with us today. It was a lot of fun. It's been a pleasure. appreciate you guys taking the time and uh, hope to see you in Australia. Yeah, good. <laughs> Thank you. The QAV podcast is a production of Spacecraft Publishing Proprietary Limited, authorised representative of AFSL 520442, AFS representative number 00129217. Please don't make any investment decisions based solely on listening to this podcast. This is presented as general advice only, not personal financial advice. We don't know your personal financial circumstances. Please see a financial planner before making any investing decisions. Thank you.